Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore the influence and impact of framing. In particular, how mainstream news tends to frame national issues as gamified, two-sided face-offs. Democrat versus Republican. Conservative versus progressive. This politician versus that politician. This can happen even when the two-sided frame is not actually relevant to the story, and it can lead to an erosion of understanding among news audiences. My guests are Dr. Regina Lawrence, professor and associate dean in the School of Journalism and Communication at the University of Oregon, and Dr. Amber Boydston, professor of political science with a courtesy appointment in the communications department at UC Davis. So the East Bay Times published an article today about the Republicans' relief bill, uh, the slimmed-down, quote, relief bill that they uh, were trying to pass in the Senate. And the headline is, Senate Democrats Sink GOP's Slimmed-Down Coronavirus Relief Bill. And that fascinated me because I wasn't quite sure how Senate Democrats could sink anything because they don't have the majority. So I looked at the voting rolls, and it turned out it was a 52-47 vote. There are 45 Democrats, two independents, and 53 Republicans in the Senate. That means at least both independents and five Republicans had to vote against it. So... I thought that framing is exactly what I've been seeing a lot. Find a way to make it two-sided, even if that's not quite the whole picture. Um, And so I'm wondering if we can start there, start with this whole knee-jerk, having to frame anything nationally political as Republican versus Democrat, even when on its face it doesn't seem to fit. So Regina, I'm wondering if you could start. Sure, that's a fascinating example. Uh, I think a, a general response to your question, and then I'd love to get to that specific example, but a general response is that kind of makes sense, right? From a journalistic perspective, we do live in a two-party system. The two parties are the way that power is allocated and leveraged in our political system. It is the key voting um, cue for, for many, the vast majority of voters when it comes right down to it. So it makes a lot of sense. And also, as you're suggesting, it sometimes really oversimplifies or even gets things wrong. Let me clarify. It looks like this is an AP story that the Times is running. So I don't know who wrote the headline. But it sounds to me like that's just a hastily written <laughs> headline that doesn't actually fit the reality. And it's interesting that, as you're pointing out, the default is that, well, if something of the Republicans got sunk, it must have been the Democrats who sunk it. You know, a more interesting and perhaps more accurate headline is something about how there is some internal division within the Republican Party. And that's hugely significant for people to understand. And that seems like that might be getting lost a bit in that headline. Yes, exactly. The idea that the real nuances or complexity of what's going on are getting lost and not being discussed. And what you just mentioned, it was actually a handful of Republicans that quote, sunk the bill or wanted more from the bill and therefore used their vote to express that, whatever the case may be. But we're not talking about that here. We're talking about our party, you know, adversarial framing. Um, Amber, anything you want to add to that? Two things strike me. First, that that's not an unusual kind of headline in any kind of context. And that even 10 years ago, we wouldn't be surprised to see that kind of headline. Because as we know, journalists are incentivized and professionalized to right to give the public the kinds of things that they're going to want to read and they're going to want to read what Regina has written about called game framing right this red versus blue kind of kind of tension that's just a more interesting and more clickbaity kind of way of framing it 
the second thing that strikes me though is is I'm I'm just wondering about the position that journalists find themselves in in 2020 where they have all of that background of those normal pushes and pulls about the kinds of ways that they would frame a story and write a headline and on top of that they're being lambasted by the right for being too friendly to the left. And whether that's true or not true in a given case, I can only imagine how that would mess with your psychology in in trying to present yourself as an independent press, especially against this long historical backdrop of of this false equivalency of trying always to present an even-handed side, even when you know that that one party or one candidate really isn't giving the American public the same caliber of of product. To your point that this is not new, I think you're absolutely right. And I wonder if that led us here. Like the less we truly engage with the complexities and nuances, and, and as someone who was a journalist and now teaches journalism, I feel that it's our profound responsibility to help the public uh, navigate and grapple with the issues. And the less that we do that, the more we go for these simplistic headlines, which mainstream journalism has been happening. I think we see potentially an erosion of the public's ability to grapple with these issues. Regina, your comments on that? This can become a chicken and the egg kind of question, you know, <laughs> and, and sort of which is driving which. And, 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 and one thing we know in social science is that human behavior usually is complex and not simple and social phenomena are complex. But I think what you're pointing to is sort of the relationship between news quality and the quality of public opinion. And that it does make sense that if news quality declines, that at some point the public's understanding of issues and therefore the quality of public opinion will decline as well. Yeah. Amber. I really sympathize with individual journalists who, against this backdrop of these longstanding problems of, of framing things in terms of red versus blue, find themselves in a newly uncomfortable position that we're wanting them not just to do better against their traditional standard, but to do better in this context where more than half of the country distrusts what they're saying if they were to offer the more nuanced version of the headline that says there's some discord within the Republican Party. It's not just that that wouldn't be as clickbaity, but it's also that it gives fodder to this narrative that the press is out to get the the right wing. I hear you, Amber. And then on top of that, almost every news organization, traditional legacy news organization is losing market share. Right. And so there are all of these pressures, which we want a journalist to uh, not feel. But of course, we feel that we want our news outlets to stay open. We want our readers to actually engage. But yes, if we don't frame it in this like false objectivity space, then we risk losing one side or the other. And I think that's that's a really important point, especially in this age of, of distrust. Amber, as someone who who assesses media framing from your perspectives, is this problematic, the way this framing is happening in the news media? I think it's really problematic, especially if we think of the media in a legacy way as intending to serve the public writ large. To do that, the critical linchpin of political communication is is source credibility. So the message that you're sending to a given audience is only going to matter to the degree to which they trust you. And so right now, as we see this increasing splintering of media into these, um, what Talia Stroud calls these niche right media markets, 
different news outlets are having varying degrees of source credibility with their given audiences. And so that's, you know, potentially problematic because it leads to this echo chamber effect, but it also is increasingly problematic because, because it's no longer the case, at least to the extent that it was decades ago, that there's a legacy press that everyone can respect as the arbiter of, of truth and of what's happening in the news these days. And without that, we, we don't have a ballast for, for what is happening in the country. So yeah, I think that's deeply problematic. Well, the way I'm viewing it is that we as a society were highly unequipped to navigate this shift in media coverage, because I think there are some good things about it. When you get more voices in the mix, uh, more perspectives in the mix, you would hopefully get a more nuanced look at what's going on in society. And yet the hopes for what maybe the internet would do and what this democratic access would do haven't been realized. The other thing I wanted to talk about with regard to how we're communicating is something we brought up just before we actually started our recording was the idea that we, we frame things in this Democrat-Republican frame. And as simplistic as it may have been, it may have been relevant earlier in earlier times, or at least partially relevant. But we're currently in a moment where we have Democrat versus Republican. But as Regina, I think you made the point, it's somewhat Democratic versus anti-democratic in the way some of the language coming from various people who represent the parties or various people in society who call themselves one party or another. And we're trying to navigate that as journalists without really uh, feeling confident enough to say it. And I think it goes back to not wanting to lose audience. Pointing out a really profound dilemma for journalists today, because as Amber just um, explained so well, they're so accustomed to uh, covering everything as, you know, red versus blue, left versus right, etc., cetera, uh, Republican versus Democrat. And that's still a useful frame. The problem is that now a lot of the discourse emanating from the, the Trumpian right, shall we say, just simply isn't very little D democratic. That is, it's expressing values that are fundamentally opposed to tolerance, inclusion, that are very much in favor of using military force and police force to settle domestic disputes, um, et cetera, et cetera. This really puts journalists in the U.S. in uncomfortable territory because we really haven't been here before, I don't think, or at least not to this extent, or at least not for a very long time. At least some studies have suggested that most journalism schools don't require students to take much around political science, civil society, uh, classes that would help them understand and contextualize and ground their role in democracy. So what I've observed is that journalism schools quite often just treat it as a given. You know, journalists are important to democracy. Freedom of the press is important to democracy, but actually don't really formalize that in their curriculum. The profession is feeling unmoored and really challenged, and they don't kind of have these well-articulated principles that would, would be something like, we can't be advocates of any one position. That's not our role in the U.S. context, in the U.S cultural understanding of journalism, but we can be advocates for communities. We can be advocates for democracy. We can be advocates for the sanctity of democratic institutions and the sanctity of the vote, for example. That's not partisan, or at least it shouldn't be. 
it's been made partisan, it's become partisan, but it really shouldn't be. And it seems to me, perhaps there's a way to reground journalism and there might really be a, a, a great need to reground journalism on, on, on those principles. You just articulated something that I've been having such a hard time articulating, that where can journalists be advocates? Advocates for democracy, advocates for democratic principles, and for communities uh, who don't have a voice or who, who need uh, the, the estate of the people to represent them. Journalists are trying to navigate how to do that. And I think when you name it the way you've named it, that's when we can start to understand. For me, I think naming something and being intentional about it is a way to actually make it happen. And I'm not sure that we have named that yet. And I think that's one reason why we're flailing so much as things have shifted in the world of journalism. Amber. Yeah, Regina, you you put it so gracefully. And I agree with you that the rules of the game have gone unspoken, but the rules of the game up to this point have been that journalists aren't on the left, they're not on the right, Yes, they're human beings, but they're on the side of little d democracy. And anything that, de- that Democrats or Republicans do to violate the rules of little d democracy, they're going to call them out on because that's their job. But what happened somewhere before the, the current rhetoric that we're seeing is that science started to get aligned with the left what we find ourselves in is this world where conservatives and and liberals have taken a side on on the notion of scientific advancement on the notion of academia on the notion of of truth it shouldn't be controversial that journalists should be fighting for democracy but in the context of science and and these principles of of civil rights being on the liberal side instead of the conservative side, it becomes a partisan thing. And Gina, to your point, maybe had the rules of the game been articulated better earlier, had J schools done a better job of articulating those rules, had there been media literacy courses for everyone at early grade levels, then maybe we wouldn't find ourselves in quite this position. You call to mind uh, Stephen Colbert when he was doing the Colbert Report said reality has a liberal bias. And something I also think contributes is how we actually learn about our systems of government and democracy. I think at some point in the education system, there was an assumption that everyone just knows this already. Like everyone understands there are three branches of government. Everyone understands this. And therefore we stopped teaching it. And of course, younger people don't just know it instinctually. It's got to be taught. All of a sudden there's this vacuum of, of certain knowledge that would help us maybe understand our systems of government and understand democracy, little d, versus, you know, uh, threats to it or other ways of, of uh, organizing a government and a people. And here we are. In addition to J schools doing some articulating and naming and committing to this new reality, I'd love to see us teach the things we thought we could take for granted. Uh, Regina, I saw you nodding your head. I love the way you put that. I'd love to see us teach the things we thought we could take for granted. There's a wonderful book by Thomas Patterson. Maybe Amber can help me remember the name. Informing the News. Argues for the radical concept of knowledge-based journalism because so much curriculum in J schools emphasizes how to learn the tools of the craft and doesn't emphasize substantive knowledge. We're living in an era with fragmentation of media where there are many pathways now for people who are skilled explainers and skilled storytellers and skilled multimedia journalists, etc. There's a lot of different ways 
to um, get knowledge out there into the world and to use your talents. And one really great way to establish a brand for yourself is to actually have some deep knowledge of something, right? And not try to be just a generalist. And too much J school curriculum, in my opinion, still aims to churn out generalists, um, or that's the implicit model of what the journalistic job will be. One thing that should be required in J schools is that students essentially have a substantive minor or a second major, and they take courses in political science or economics or sociology. One of the big disciplines that helps them understand the context in which they'll be operating and orients them and grounds them and anchors them as they move forward to cover that world. I completely agree with you. And it's funny, in my career as a journalist, I was a generalist. And I found myself over and over again thinking, I love my master's degree, but I wish I'd done something more specific than communications for my master's degree. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking about media framing with doctors Amber Boydston and Regina Lawrence. This is a good moment to think about what kind of education are we all getting. I think this moment in time gives us a lot of food for thought about how curricula at all of those different levels could be infused with both more depth in specific areas, but also more awareness of, of other areas. I would love to see everyone in America take a media literacy class, and I'd love to have everyone in America take a philosophy class and a data science class, because it's somewhere between philosophy and data science that, that you start to understand the nuance that is really at at play behind that headline that you started us out with. I am encouraged, maybe I just need to be encouraged by something right now, but today I choose to be encouraged by the fact that the students that I teach, they are so savvy. They just have an awareness of communication. It seems baked in, in a way that I don't have. And so that gives me a lot of hope. Regina. The last thing I want to do is um, take away your, your shred of hope for the day. Oh, Amber. Regina, come on. <laughs> We're friends. <laughs> but I'd like to respectfully um, disagree a bit with one point that you made anyway, and that is, uh, yes, I'd love to see everybody take a media literacy course, although it depends very much on what that curriculum looks like. Agreed. There are curricula out there in so-called media literacy that really kind of train people to just turn their BS detectors on high. You know, everybody has an agenda just across the board. Skepticism is your best tool. That's not terrible, right? But if what we're really aiming at is more discernment about understanding what makes a quality piece of information, that training is what seems to me to be much more important than that's not always what those programs are offering. The second thing I would say is that I love hearing Amber say that her students have this kind of savvy that comes from having navigated this really complex media environment, just like since they can remember, since they got their first phone as little ones. But there's plenty of research out there to suggest that there's whole swaths of people in the United States and the UK and around the world who aren't regular news consumers, who don't have that level of discernment whatsoever, and have a series of so-called folk theories, as Benjamin Toff and Rasmus Nielsen have referred to them, that they say sort of, you know, I know that information's out there. If I really need to know it, it's going to find me, or I can just Google it, and I'll, I'll know the truth if I, if I really need to. That's not a very savvy way of navigating today's um, information environment, particularly with the problem of rampant disinformation that we have today. I agree. And I'll add that 
it seems like beyond or even before getting to specific skills and how to engage with specific media, the bigger conversation that needs to happen is around humanizing people on the other side of the aisle and having empathy. The thing that concerns me the most, and this includes about my students, is that they're very well able to pick up a specific news item that their friend gives them via Snapchat or whatever, and they're able to look at that headline and read it with some discernment. But we know this from studies. If they get a headline that is labeled Fox News, if they're a liberal or MSNBC, if they're a conservative, there's right there's that, that knee-jerk reaction that we all have that's getting sharper that we just don't trust it. And that's the part that, that makes me deeply nervous is that there's this wall of distrust that means that, that even if we can train ourselves and our students to get away from those folk notions and to, and to gravitate towards more nuanced, savvy readership, we're maybe only able to do that right now within our own bubbles. It's that black and white, oh, well, if we teach media literacy, all will be well. And certainly we need to teach media literacy. My God, absolutely. But it's not the only thing. There's never just one thing. And so I appreciate the idea of discernment, the idea of working with students to see how they're working with media and guiding them as they as they try to figure this stuff out. It's incumbent upon all of us to remember that there's not just one solution. And don't throw it out. Just because media literacy is not perfect doesn't mean it's bad, which I think is another tendency right now in our uh, cultural context. So on that note, what can we do as educators and as people who represent uh, the political science side of things, the journalism side of things? It kind of depends on what what's the right traction point. Are we trying to change journalists and the way they do their everyday work? Or do we want to start with the readers, with the citizens, with the audiences for news, as Amber was talking about more, and um, try to do a better job of creating news consumers that wouldn't be satisfied with overly simplistic news. I find when I'm teaching journalism that that question comes up and I say, well, you can't control how people uh, respond to you, but you can be transparent, you can be communicative. So there is only so far a journalist can go. You're right, the, this audience behavior, this audience orientation matters a great deal. Uh, so Amber, what thoughts do you have about how we might help audiences in the U.S. consume information in a more nuanced way? I think the bigger problem that would need to be addressed in order to really address this problem of how to de-gamify the framing of political news is how to de-vilify the other side of the aisle. I just worry so deeply that, especially after the conventions, there was a lot of positive messaging on both sides and both sides had just terrible things to say about the opposing party and the opposing candidate. And that's not new, but it feels to me like there's a level of vitriol that didn't exist 10 years ago. That thread has to get tugged on in the American consciousness so that we're not so angry or scared of the other side. What you remind me of is something can be recognized as acceptable political discourse. And then if you walk down that road a little bit, it can be unacceptable. But 
when you say, oh, it's not new, well, it's not new. They've always been doing that. Yeah, but not to this extent or not to this level. This level is problematic. Uh, Regina. I agree with Amber about the increasing levels of vitriol and how concerning that is. I also feel the need to say it, to name it, that when you have a president who, just to take one of many examples, is willing to send, in some cases, unidentified federal forces into local communities in a way that really stretches the bounds of the constitution, really stretches democratic norms to their breaking point. I mean, we really are talking about qualitatively something very different. We're not talking about from eight years ago, kind of garden variety political polarization. We are talking about a society, I think, that is facing a choice of whether we are going to continue to have democratic institutions and a constitutionally limited presidency or not. So when the stakes are that high, vitriol is, is unavoidable. It's unavoidable and it's tragic. I don't mean to say it's not. But I also want to point out, I mean, I think the vitriol is, has been so far worst when it comes to national news. And there's some really interesting research that Joanna Dunaway and Joshua Dar did a couple of years ago that suggests that when news focuses on the national, that's when it gets more polarizing, right? And so when you have cuts in local news organizations and then they end up defaulting to just taking the wire services and covering the national politics, that creates a different environment in that community. And you see people either become more polarized or disengaged because they don't wanna go there. They don't like it. They don't like feeling upset all the time. And national politics just is upsetting all the time, it seems now. So I think there's something to be said for local journalism at the community level and the city level to do things differently. So here, I guess I would put in a word for all sorts of news organizations around the country that are experimenting with different forms of community engagement as a way to try to build what Amber is talking about. Let's build some basis for dialogue, for understanding, for empathy. Let's bring different kinds of people together and structure it in a way that we can hear each other and learn from each other and grapple together as a community with problems our community is facing and not getting so caught up in, in the horrible, divisive national politics. I think you're right, Regina. And it's not just to me that the level of vitriol feels sharper now than it has before in my lifetime, remembering that I'm young enough that I, you know, I didn't live through the civil rights movement. But it's not just that we're getting top-down messaging from politicians. It also feels to be happening at that community level. Let me just give two examples. A friend told me earlier this morning about a high school track meet in a relatively small local community. One of the schools had parents in attendance who were all in masks, and the other side had uh, parents and fans in attendance, many of whom had masks that had the center of the mask cut out as a political statement. That just feels sharp to me in a way that, that is not fully explainable by us interpreting national events. And the other example is the notion that you would tell someone that your parent is a Trump supporter or that your parent is a Biden supporter. It seems to me anecdotally like there's this instinct to offer an explanation after that statement that there I think wasn't eight years ago, 10 years ago, that my parent is a 
Trump supporter, but she's a really smart woman, or my parent is a Biden supporter, but don't worry, she supports gun control or or whatever. When you talk about things like that, especially the mask, it comes outside the realm of political discussion and into the realm of life and death, right? Because this virus is easily transmittable and, and can kill people. So all of a sudden, it's not politics anymore, at least to me, but it's still politics to a segment of our population. And we have a lot to work on there. Regina, your point about reinvigorating local news is an important one. And also uh, engaging people across their differences in a way where they can see each other's humanity. There are organizations working to do that. We definitely need more of that. I just want us all to give each other the benefit of the doubt. People who are doing a job are doing it because they've given nuance thought to things. I am hard pressed to find many academics or many journalists who are far right or far left. We know enough about this stuff to to see both sides of things. Thank you to my guests, Dr. Regina Lawrence, Professor and Associate Dean in the School of Journalism and Communication at the University of Oregon, and Dr. Amber Boydston, Professor of Political Science with a courtesy appointment in the Communications Department at UC Davis. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.